Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word once again to this letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, this morning we will take up this last paragraph, um, but I have decided to take it up in two weeks, uh, so this week and next week. We've had, um, up to this point, some pretty challenging texts here in 1 Peter before us, challenging because they are not easy for us to live out, challenging because they go against many of our natural desires, challenging because they go against many of our cultural expectations, um, but the challenge has been in plucking up the courage to trust the Lord and to live according to what he says. This morning, our text, as we read through it, you'll see the challenge is that it gets weird. Fun weird, um, but it gets weird. And um, I was going to, uh, to attempt to do this all in one sermon, uh, but then with the way that things have unfolded this week, I decided that um, I will attempt to do it in two weeks. This first week, today, what we will do is we will avoid the weirdness. Um, and we will focus in on the, the things that are clear in the passage. Uh, and, and we're going to do this because the things that are clear in the passage are, th are things that are exactly what we need to be reminded of this morning. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll have fun with the weird stuff. 1 Peter 3, I'm going to read verse 13, and then we'll read that last paragraph. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this timely word, words of truth that we need for the encouragement that is so helpful to live out our faith, and to do so, Lord, especially when it is difficult. And so use these words. Speak to us through Christ and make them alive within us through your Spirit so that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and with discernment for how to live excellent lives, pure and blameless 
in difficult and trying times as we wait for the return of our Savior. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How interesting that Jesus dying, Jesus being raised from the dead, Jesus ascending to the throne in heaven, that's not the weird part of the text. I mean, that's weird, right? We have to acknowledge it. It's, it's, it's Christian truth, but it is so opposite of our daily experience of interacting with, with people. But thankfully, that truth, I, I hope, has penetrated us so that even though it is weird, it is, it is accepted, and it is this truth that we base our lives on. But we have to acknowledge that it is a bit strange. What I said last week is that what Peter has been trying to encourage us to see in this letter is that for, a, uh, for the people of God who find themselves living in an extremely diverse region, culturally, an extremely diverse region with regards to religion, as they find themselves living in a region that is not their natural home, as they find themselves living amidst a difficult situation that if they do not acknowledge Caesar as Lord and offer their pinch of sacrifice of incense, to the gods of whatever trade guild they are a part of, that they risk being seen as troublemakers. They risk being seen as those who are disrupting the natural order of society. They are seen as those who are endangering society by creating a reason for the gods to get upset and therefore for the gods to bring judgment instead of blessing. They are living with a lot of pressure. They are definitely, they are not welcome. They are not seen as being valuable. They are not seen as being important. They do not have power. They do not have prestige. They do not have influence. And within this situation, feeling powerless, feeling like their voice is not only not listened to, but has been taken away. Feeling like they are in danger. What Peter has been saying is that your task is to make Christianity visible within that kind of circumstance. To present it as intelligible and to reveal it as desirable. This is the task, and this is the calling. And some of the specifics that he has given up to this point have to do with valuing the word of Christ above our own personal um, influence, our own personal ease and comfort. He has talked about acknowledging and recognizing and voluntarily submitting to a government that is arrayed against them. They have been told to do this in a setting in which their employers 
may take special pot shots at them because of their profession of Jesus Christ. They have been told to do this in homes where maybe one spouse does not believe. What is clear here from 1 Peter is that he tells us that we should never expect to have a life on this side of the consummation of Christ's kingdom to be one marked by ease or comfort or persuasion, that we should not expect it to go well, to be respected, to be honored, to be wanted. The expectation that he has set before us is that we should understand that our profession of Jesus Christ brings with it trouble. But, as we've been reminded in The Princess Bride, life is pain. And anyone telling you otherwise is just selling you something. And I'm sure I didn't get that word for word. For a different reason, life under the sun, after the fall of Adam, and as we await for the consummation of the return of our king, life is pain because of sin, because of death. Sin is real. Death is real. The forces of chaos and darkness are real. By the way, this evening, in our supplemental study, we're going to dig in to uh, some of the worldview background that Peter and other New Testament writers have, which leads him to say the weird things that he has talked about in this text. But they understood the world to be fallen, and they understood the world to be made up not only of the material world that we can see, and hear and touch and handle, but they also understood the world to be made up of a spiritual dimension that we don't see, that we don't feel, that we can't touch, and yet it is there. And there are, there are beings in existence within that dimension, and there is an interaction between that world that we don't see and the world that we do. The reality is that we are called, even in these difficult and trying times, to make Christianity visible, to communicate it as intelligible, and to reveal it as desirable. But what, what is it that was set before the American nation this week with regards to Christianity? What was it that was put before them that the, 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 the video that has gone viral of, of people pointing to what they think is evangelical Christianity in order to mock it and to show that it is a danger to American society? Well, Paula White Kane, who is one of the spiritual advisors to President Donald Trump, decided to have a prayer vigil for the election. And in the prayer vigil, as she is praying for the election, she is 
binding demons. She is binding chaotic forces that will attempt to steal the election. She is calling for and celebrating that angels from Africa and South America are on their way here to fight those forces of chaos and darkness that will steal the election. And then she prays in tongues. And all the while, this is my favorite part, is this guy with a notebook just walking back and forth behind her, some random guy in shorts. So he's not even, I don't even know who he is, but he's just walking back and forth, coming in and out of the camera frame. Very interesting. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done, she said. For angels have even been dispatched from Africa right now. In the name of Jesus from South America, they're coming here. And then the tongues. I won't try to quote that because I didn't understand it. I guess I don't have the gift of interpretation. What is it that was set before America this week? What is what Christianity was made visible to them? It was a Christianity that is not intelligible. It is a Christianity that is not desirable. And ironically, it's a Christianity that tries to tell us that if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, that your life will go well. It is called prosperity theology, or often goes by the moniker prosperity gospel. It's a belief that God will give you your heart's desire, money in the bank, a healthy body, a thriving family, boundless happiness, even political power, authority, and persuasion. What it focuses on is an earthly reward, earthly material reward. Believers, they say, if you really believe in Christ, then it doesn't mean that you won't be diagnosed with cancer, but when you are, if you name it and claim it, you can rid yourself of it. If you just have enough faith, God will give you the victory. Now, there's a whole lot wrong here. But two of the things that I want to point out is that, one, it associates blessing with your works. It associates blessing with material blessing. And it teaches on the other side that if you are not experiencing these things, it's because you have done something wrong. One person that got caught up in the, into the prosperity gospel who eventually was able to be freed from it and who has done research on it, he said what he found in his research is that believers want an escape. They want an escape from poverty. They want an escape from failing health. They want an escape from the feeling that their, their lives are, are, um, are leaky buckets. Yes, yeah, some people wanted Bentleys but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pain of their present. 
People want salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They want to see God rescue their broken teenagers or their misfiring marriages. They want talismans to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They want an iota of power over the things that are ripping their lives apart at the seams. What they want is reassurance. That if they prayed and believed and lived righteously, they would be rewarded with some measure of earthly comfort. What does Peter tell us in verse 17? It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What Peter is presenting to people who also know what it's like to live where their lives are being affected by sin, their sin, the sin within their church, as well as the sin in the community outside of the church, they know what that's like. They know what it's like to live in in the midst of a cultural darkness. They know what it's like to live in a culture that celebrates death. They know what it's like to live in a culture where you know in your area where is the dump where you take unwanted babies and throw them on the trash pile. Where is the dump, right? Where is that place where you escort an older person who can no longer contribute to society and take them and leave them at that trash dump to die? so that they will not be a strain on the resources of the community. They know what it's like to live in darkness. And they know what it's like to live with no voice in their government. But they also understand that even those dark areas of life are lived out in the, according to the will of God and under the rule of Jesus Christ. When you take the weird part of this text and you kind of take it out for a second and you focus in on the things that at least sound familiar to us, what we find here is nothing less than a simple Christian confession of faith regarding the rule of Jesus Christ and the implications that it has for suffering in this world in order to experience blessing in the world to come over against what is being presented to them and that is to have some kind of earthly success and blessing at the risk of eternal judgment. Yes, all of life is pain. What God has been saying here is that yes, sin is real and it's and it's everywhere. And because of that, you're going to suffer. But you can either suffer for a moment now as one united to Jesus Christ where you have the hope of open vindication for eternity, or you can live for blessing now and set yourself up 
to experience eternal condemnation. You see that? There's no middle ground in Peter. And there's no middle ground for you and for me. There is no dabbling here and dabbling there. There is no dabbling in the world and trying to have uh, what it considers success while also remaining faithful to Jesus Christ. And that is because the means by which our Savior has been openly vindicated and revealed as king is through his suffering for doing good. And what Peter has been telling us, and he reminds us of once again here in verse 18, that this is the way that God has revealed his son. And this is the story that all those who are united to his son will experience in this life. Now it's to different degrees. Some people, their suffering is just suffering uh, under their own, you know, the consequences of dealing with their own sin. Some people, their suffering is dealing with the consequences of sin in their bodies where they, they do get the diagnosis of cancer. Some people, the suffering is, the, is something that happens to them mentally or emotionally. Some Christians, it's even sealing their witness with death. There is a wide variety of what this suffering looks like, but make no difference, but, but be, be very certain here. You're going to suffer, and it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Now, we have this fourfold simple confession of Christ that he gives us to help us understand why it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. And the confession is simply this. Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Jesus went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. That's where we get weird. He has ascended in authority to the right hand of God. And so let's look at this very quickly. Because these are four of the most fundamental things that we are to know and to believe about Jesus Christ, not only with regards to salvation, but especially with regards to serving him faithfully in the midst of suffering and difficulty and trial. We are to be prepared to follow Christ even as Christ lived and ministered in this world. Christ who suffered, Christ who bore witness, Christ who was exalted and vindicated. This is our story as well. And it is so important for us right now. Because not only did the Roman or the Greco-Roman culture celebrate uh, success and celebrate victory with, with uh, you know, who is in charge and who um, has things going well for them, our culture believes the same thing. 
The winning side is the side that is enjoying the blessing. The winning side is the side that has things going well for them. The winning side is the side that has influence. The winning side is the side that isn't struggling, right? If you're struggling, you can't be victorious. These two things don't make sense in the Greco-Roman world. They do not make sense in American culture. And yet this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that suffering does not establish who is right and who is wrong. And suffering does not establish who has won and who has lost. And that is because suffering and death are not a final word. But as revealed in the ministry of Jesus Christ, they are a necessary means in a fallen world to something else. One, by Christ's crucifixion, he has conquered sin. What is our first fundamental profession of Christ? That through his crucifixion, he has conquered sin. In, in Romans, Paul really lays this out for us so well and helping us understand that through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the penalty for sin has been fully paid. It means that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 5.1. The penalty has been covered. The penalty has been paid. And God doesn't double dip. It's done. Penalty is paid. The power is broken. He goes on to say this is why to embrace Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you embrace a laissez-faire uh, interaction with sin in this world. That accepting Jesus Christ where he alone has fully satisfied everything that is needed for salvation doesn't mean that you flirt with sin. It doesn't mean that you live a worldly life and, you just, and you're just like, oh, but it's okay because God's forgiven me. What he says is, when the penalty of sin is paid, the power of sin is broken. And so no, not only is there no longer any condemnation, there is no longer any control. You are free in Jesus Christ now to pursue righteousness where you could not before. It doesn't mean on this side of heaven that you will only pursue righteousness. But it does mean your life now will be characterized by a mix of you pursuing righteousness at times and you continuing to pursue sin at times. And that is why, even within our service of worship, week after week after week, we acknowledge this within our service so that we have that opportunity to confess that ongoing struggle with sin and be renewed in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the sin that we have just confessed, the penalty is paid and the power is broken. And that is why, by the way, in every one of our confessions of sin, we always end with asking the Lord for help to live out that new reality of broken sin. Jesus, by his crucifixion, has conquered sin. So many of us, though, don't really think that's true. 
And notice he says, once, by one thing, it is forever conquered. But how many of us live paralyzed with shame, with guilt, with fear, with confusion, where when we do become aware of that sin in our lives, rather than fleeing to the God who has covered it, we retreat and we try to wash ourselves and we try to clean up our act and we think, well, if I, if I can get things cleaned up well enough, then I can come back to God and receive forgiveness. We don't flee to him. We don't fly to him. We hesitate. Christ's crucifixion, by his crucifixion, he has conquered sin. Penalty and power. Presence is still here. But in the consummation, that presence will be removed. Second, by Christ's resurrection, he has conquered death and inaugurated new life. Jesus is pictured here as being a, in, in this great wrestling contest with sin and with death and with the powers of darkness. And he is revealed here in this heroic victory. But what is beautiful here and what is so subtle in the language but so massive in its theology is the result. What happens through his heroic victory that came through death, he is raised back to life. That the spirit, we are told here, becomes the divine agent by which his body is revivified in the resurrection. That he is brought back to life, but he is not brought back to the same life that he had before his death. He is brought back to resurrection life. He is the first of mankind to be raised in victory over sin and death. He has a new body. He has a new life. And in this resurrection, he is the first of the new creation. We are not waiting for new creation to come when he returns. We taste of it even now. With regards to suffering, Jesus has conquered the sin that causes it. So we don't have to fear it. And Jesus has been raised to new life and has introduced the new creation. Which means that suffering is not the only thing we will experience as we wait for the fullness of that new life to be revealed. But we already taste of that new life. And so which reality are you going to allow to dictate how you live? The earthly realm in which suffering is still real, even though it's conquered? Or the new creation. Christ in his dominion has overcome death. He has the keys of death. Which means he exercises power over death. Which means he will raise his people out of death. Which means even though death is still a present danger to us, its danger is momentary. Its danger is finite. It can only do one thing. 
and that is get you out of the world in which there is a mixture of sin and death, a new creation, and introduce you into the world where there is only new creation. Yeah, they may be able to kill the body, Jesus says, but they cannot destroy the soul. Jesus has been raised, and Jesus has been accepted by his Father. By his resurrection, he has conquered death. He has inaugurated new life. Third, by Christ's proclamation, he reveals his reign even over the forces of chaos and darkness. Who are the spirits? When did he preach? What did he preach? Where did he preach? (laughs) These are going to be fun questions. Peter is obviously working through a sequence of events here going between his crucifixion and his ascension. And within this chronology, there is some point that we are told where Jesus Christ proclaims to these spirits in some kind of spirit realm that he has won, that he has been victorious. This is not the language that the New Testament usually uses to say preach the gospel. To our Greek nerds, that would be euangelizo, to preach the good news. This is that word keruso, which means to proclaim as one who is representative of authority. This is the word that would be used when someone would come um, to, to a foreign nation and to proclaim something to them on behalf of the king. It was a proclamation that had authority. It was a proclamation that revealed ultimate realities. Jesus, we are told here, is not just raised in victory. He goes and he tells those over whom he has been victorious, I have won. Indeed, as Jesus said, it is finished. This is a proclamation of victory in war. All the powers of hell and darkness have been subdued under his feet, and there is no escaping his coming judgment as Lord of heaven and earth and under the earth. Jesus doesn't need angels dispatched from Africa and South America for his will to be perfectly unfolded in America. How many times do we see the spirits in the Gospels freaking out when Jesus is revealed to them? How many times do we hear them say, is this the time? Is this when you're going to destroy us? And he's like, no, it's coming. But that's not what I'm doing right now. His proclamation in the gospel is the euangelizo proclamation of good news. The kingdom has come, repent and believe. But there is a proclamation that is coming where the proclamation will be, it is finished and there is no longer opportunity for repentance and faith. You will now enter into the fullness of the consequences of what you have wanted in your rebellion. And that is scary. Lastly, by Christ's ascension, 
He reigns over everything. Everything has been placed under his feet. And from here until his return, what is happening is that things are continuing to function under his feet. So that even an election in America is taking place under his feet. And what the result, the result that comes is the result that he wants that will be carried out and lived out and experienced under his feet. Can you see now why baptism is connected to this? This is nothing less than what Jesus said when he instituted baptism at the end of Matthew. Go, make disciples of, every, of all the nations, baptizing them. Why? How? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I commission you. That's our reality. Whether we live in a culture that says they like God and attempt to do things according to what God has revealed, or if we live in a culture that hates him and does everything they can to cultivate chaos and darkness over new life. Christ's enemies and our enemies have been made his footstool. And so what do we say? What do we reveal to people that are struggling with poverty, with failing health, with feeling like their lives are leaky buckets, who are looking for relief from the wounds of their past and the pain of their present? What do we say to people who think that victory is revealed in ease, prosperity, influence, and control? Well, the first thing that we have to ask is what are we saying to ourselves? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your glorious rule that you, for some reason, have been pleased to reveal throughout history by allowing creatures to rebel. Allowing creatures to refuse you. And yet in your grace and your mercy, rescuing even your enemies to make them your children. Father, I pray that this fourfold confession of Christ in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his proclamation, and in his ascension would be the confession of us, your people. And not only when times are good and not only when things look like from an earthly perspective that we are winning, 
because, Lord, because of this fourfold ministry of Christ, we already live in his victory. And so, Lord, we ask that you correct us. Correct us from that false assumption that victory will mean ease, that victory will look like earthly success. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have bought into the prosperity gospel by thinking that suffering means there must be something wrong. And instead, Lord, fill us with the confidence and hope of our Savior, who has brought us to you through his suffering, so that our suffering may indeed be seen for what it is, as the psalmist told us in Psalm 34, that you redeem the lives of your children. Lord, you have redeemed us, and our suffering is not meaningless, it has purpose. Help us to have the confidence of realizing that even our suffering makes Christianity visible communicates it as intelligible and reveals it as desirable. Convince us, Lord, so that we may go forth and give the reason for our hope in a world that looks for it in earthly things. It is in Jesus' name that we pray.